Hello and welcome to the Iris Murdoch podcast. In her essay, Hours in a Library from 1916, Virginia Woolf, who Iris would later call that darling dangerous woman, wrote that the true reader is a man of immense curiosity, of ideas, open-minded and communicative, to whom eating is more the nature of brisk exercise in the open of a sheltered study, that literature is no one's private ground, that literature is common ground. And this is how she sees uh, the common reader. And of course, uh, Wolf has two uh, major collections called The Common Reader. And she also says that one reads not for academic insight, but for pleasure, and rather than to impart knowledge or correct the opinion of others. And Wolf counted herself among the common readers. Joining me today, uh, we've got two guests who are immensely curious, open-minded, uh, keen on brick, brisk exercise, as well as the fiction of Iris Murdoch. So we're going to be talking across her fiction, um, talking about what uh, makes Iris appeal to the general or common reader today. And we'll be probably picking apart this idea of what the common reader is. Uh, my first guest is uh, Liz Dexter. Hello, Liz. Hello. Thanks for coming on. Uh, Liz is a proofreader, transcriber and runner, in fact, a marathon runner, who has loved uh, Murdoch's novels since she was introduced to them as a teenager. And with the encouragement of the Irish Murdoch Society, uh, she found herself doing research on Murdoch and book groups, and that became a book, um, Irish Murdoch and the Common Reader, uh, which came out in 2017. And since writing that up, she's um, created um, a, a readathon of Murdoch's work, and she read a, with a group all of Murdoch's novels in chronological order, I think for the third time? Yeah, about the third time. Some of them it was, yeah. <laughs> Um, so Liz, thank you so much for coming on. I think we couldn't have done this podcast without you. Oh, and uh, my second guest is uh, Kent Vemmen. Uh, hello, Kent. Hello, hello. Thanks for coming on. Um, Kent is a cultural multitasker, uh, working as an artist, musician, composer, um, promoter, and he's the author of four books about the Swedish music industry. And he's um, speaking uh, to me today from Uppsala in Sweden. Um, he also runs two concert venues, an ecological store and a vegetarian cafe. Uh, so it's amazing uh, that he's been able to find the time to come on the podcast. I'm so grateful that he's here. He's a huge Iris Murdoch fan, of course, and he was a major part of the concert at the 2019 Murdoch Conference in Oxford. Liz, let's start with you. Tell us a little bit about your um, love of Iris Murdoch and where you first met her. OK, well, um... My first Iris Murdoch novel that I read was A Severed Head and I was 14 um, and I find this quite astounding that I actually kind of gathered anything from that book because it's quite a sophisticated, strange, um, slightly rude novel. Um, I was a girl at a girls grammar school, very um, kind of protected, very sheltered, living in a very kind of conservative, very normal bit of Kent and then I was introduced to her novels by a woman who introduced me to a load of my favourite authors who are still my favourite authors now, um, a lady called Mary, who was a kind of unofficial extra grandma to lots of people in my village. She was a kind of outpost of socialism. She kind of knitted her own muesli, weaved her own wine, that kind of thing. Um, and she had massive bookshelves all around her sitting room and you could basically take any book you wanted and read it 
And I think the idea was that you talked about it, especially if it was a bit confusing, um, as I think probably a severed head was to me. But basically, she introduced me as well as to Iris Modop to the Virago books that were starting up at that point, um, Barbara Pym, Elizabeth Taylor, people like that. So she was a huge influence on me. Um, I read A Severed Head. I thought it was terribly sophisticated. I felt very clever and grown up reading it. I was quite a precocious reader at that time, but um, it was just a, a kind of an amazing world that I hadn't discovered before. Um, and I got immediately hooked and I was like, I need the next one, I need the next one, I need the next one. So I um, borrowed all that I could from Mary and then I bought them all. I, I, I've got all my original ones still, as well as all the rest of the editions. Um, and I basically, I can see from the dates I bought them, which I write inside the covers, that I've basically spent my Christmas and birthday money every year on collecting. I used to go to the, the local Waterstones or wherever it was with Smiths, collect the books that were out, got all the paperbacks of everything that was out. And then I continued getting the paperbacks because I'm basically mean um, as I went along, as they came out. Um, and I think I've probably started rereading them. I know I've reread quite a few of them. I know I've read A Philosopher's Pupil five times, um, once notably in a Turkish hammam while I was waiting for my husband to be kind of boiled alive and whatever. Um, <laughs> but I basically like to read them all the way through in chronological order kind of once a decade. And I'm kind of, and I'm really, I'm 49 and I'm really hanging on till I'm 50 to do it again, which <laughs> seems a bit silly, but you know, I've only, I've only done them all recently and there are other books in the world, but she just caught me in with her world with, I think with just the humanity of it, with the warmth of them, although I like a cold novelist as well, but they're, they're warm, they're inclusive. You can read them at a lot of different levels, as I'm sure we're going to discuss. Um, and yeah, that was it really. That was it for me. If anyone asks me who my favourite author is, Iris Murdoch straight off. Um, I press them on to people. I force people to read them. Probably I buy them for people for presents. Found the Iris Murdoch Society, joined that, went to the conferences, whatever. So, yeah completely um immersed yeah, i was going to say immersed is a good word to connect yeah. with lots yes, of yeah. people and yes. it's interesting that you mentioned the viragos and pym and taylor what was it that stood out about murdoch that maybe although i'm, I'm sure you still love pym and taylor but what placed murdoch just above above other writers who are really in the same kind of around the same kind of time as her i think she was kind of I don't know whether she was more universal. She's although she's criticised for having a kind of small canvas and everyone's upper middle class and doesn't have any significant way of earning their money, or they might sit in an office, but then they find somebody shot dead in the basement or whatever. Um, I think they're larger in all aspects. They make you think about more things. There's there is a more of a variety of characters, perhaps. I'm not sure. That's it really. It's the larger canvas. It's the expansive world, but it's still a recognizable world. Oh, and the other thing is the oeuvre thing, which I know a lot of Murdoch enthusiasts think of. That you can have, I mean Barbara Pym has a world, Elizabeth Taylor probably has a world, but Iris Murdoch's works as a whole seem to all work together. Um, they've got these themes running through them, um, which I certainly the time before last when I was reading her through, I became a little bit obsessed with. Um, she's got her stones, she's got her water, she's got her drowning, she's got her dogs. You, The whole lot works as an entire oeuvre. I'm not talking about the philosophy because I can't do the philosophy. I'm not that um, way inclined, but the novels, there's themes that run through. That's why it's so fun to read them in chronological order because you can see I, I talked last time I read them all about under the net being like a kind of overture because you can see pretty well all the themes in there 
Mm. But only if you've read all the other ones and you know what themes to look for. And in fact, going right through to Jackson's Dilemma, that does still have those themes, maybe a little bit lighter, but they're all the way through. They rise and fall. The big clever themes might come and go, the, um, the kind of the death of religion all of that stuff that kind of rises up and then kind of changes. Um, but the kind of the, the stones, the hair, all of that stuff stays there all the way through. And it makes an oeuvre, which is really satisfying to read as a whole. She's got obsessions, isn't she? Well, yes. 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 Yeah. And I, and I think those can chime with a lot of her readers as well. Mm-hmm. And, and you can find an, one of her obsessions usually chimes with something that you're interested in. I, I, I find yeah. that myself looking at it. Mm-hmm. Liz, thank you. Kent, how about you? Tell us about your experience of um, first meeting Iris Murdoch. Yeah, I think I will have to start with saying that I come from a non-reading family and and from a suburb here in my hometown where uh, reading was not that popular. So up till I was like 18, 19 years old, I I had never read a book, actually. Uh, I was more into comic magazines and things like that. And then I started backpacking and traveling a lot for years and years and um, met a girl and she introduced me to Irish Murdoch and the first book was uh, The Sandcastle Hmm. Uh, and I was into reading them because I was in Israel by that time and and, uh, enjoyed reading a lot so I dived into Sandcastle and I loved the book it was uh, of course, appealing also the romantic uh, side of the book uh, and the kind of Romeo and Juliet drama, an impossible love and all that. Uh, but it took a few years more to, to actually get into her because when I came home after traveling, um, I, I, I read all kinds of books and I enjoyed them all. And, and But there was something about Irish Murdoch that kind of haunted me there was something left unsaid something that I didn't understand something Mm. a kind of secret that she kind of left out and so I kind of came back and I I bought the philosopher's pupil uh, um, the green knight and all those uh, heavier uh, larger thicker books uh, from the late 80s and and 90s Uh, and uh, so I and I, I always read them with great enjoyment. And But I always, when I had finished the book, I kind of wanted to start all over again because there was this feeling of, what did I miss? Sure, yeah. I, I, I'm sure most Irish Murdoch fans can, can um, recognize this. Uh, and I was also lo- uh, very much into the, to, to the thicker books in the beginning. I had not read The Bell and the Under the Net and all those early books that everyone was talking about. I kind of stayed away f- from them for a while, for me- for years, actually. That's interesting. You, you almost um, went backwards um, yeah, through, yeah. In, in, in a chronological sense. That's and I think, and I, I still preferred those books, actually, if, to, to be honest, from um, The Black Prince and, and forward. Yes. Although I think, of course, that the Bell is is, is an excellent book, and, and and but it's you know it's it's more modern. I, I think I since I'm born sixty three, and I I kind of have, it's easier for me to relate to the to the later books. Um, That's interesting because quite often she's thought of as almost being like an author out of time that quite often doesn't deal with, especially in some of the very late books, she doesn't deal with 
you know contemporary sensibilities she doesn't really write about life as it really is and and yet for you you found that she was doing that that's what i sent uh, sensed at the time uh i i can i completely understand what you're saying it's um you're, you're correct in that sense uh i think under the net is the only book that i find is very much placed uh, in the swinging 50s of london <laughs> which sure. i have which i of course can't really relate to uh but you're right there. And uh, why I still prefer those books is probably a first love kind of <laughs> sure. thing. Yeah. The first books uh, uh, I read and, and I liked them a lot. Yeah. And I, um, I think late, later on we're going to come on to kind of, I think, recommendations for people that perhaps haven't read as many as, as you guys have. And, uh, and thinking about where's a good place to start, but also perhaps think about um, what, what are the real highlights in, in the canon. Um, so, Ken, to come, come back to what you were you're talking about about um, reading the sandcastle and then going on to the later ones was it that you picked up the later ones because that those were the ones that were being published at that time or did you just have a, a feeling that you wanted to read sort of more lengthy fiction i read a lot of books and every time i i finished reading a book i was finished with it yeah i didn't want to read it again i i was i was uh, i was done every time i finished an irish murder book i had this sense i want more I want to do this again. I want to to uh, move into that universe. Although the I I'm astonished by this myself because I have no connection to academic life in Oxford or any of those places or middle-aged bourgeois uh, culture. Mm. Still, it affected me a lot, uh, and uh, this this astonished me. Still, I, I have no answer to this actually. Um, but so. The curiosity was was the thing. Every time I, I, I read an Irish murder book, I wanted to continue. I wanted to continue staying in that universe. I wanted to to solve the mystery. What was being what what did I miss? Sure. So it, it was like um that's why I keep returning. And I still keep returning. Yeah, I even I'm I, I, I've become uh, kind of obsessed in many ways. I even named my daughter Iris. <laughs> that, that's going quite far. <laughs> probably it's a lovely name though it is a lovely yeah, name. yeah it is. Um, but I, and i really like to un unpick this idea that um how she appeals because both both of you are, I, you know you're, you're on the the common reader podcast because you're not philosophers you're not literary academics you haven't studied uh murdoch at university and and, and so on so I'm, I'm really interested in um in the in this idea of the common reader as as wolf calls him or her and why um, Murdoch might appeal to the to the common reader and, and what she gives someone that might not have studied literature to a, a particular or, or indeed philosophy, although today we're really focusing on the literature, uh, might not have studied literature to um, to a large extent. And Liz, have you got any thoughts on that? Obviously, you, you wrote the book on the common reader, um, <laughs> although perhaps not um, in, in quite a, from that angle. Do you want to talk, talk to us a little, little bit about um, how you think she appeals to somebody who's uh, coming at her from perhaps a, a non- academic literary background yes sure um so um i first got interested in what other people thought of murdoch when i persuaded some friends um first of all i should mention i've got a couple of friends who like to do kind of book reading projects 
So I'd done, I think I'd done all of Thomas Hardy before I did this. I can't remember. I'd definitely done all of Elizabeth Taylor with a particular friend. And I persuaded some other friends that they'd like to read all of Murdoch's books in chronological order with me over a number of years. I'm not quite sure it's how. It's a I, big undertaking, isn't it? It is a big undertaking. I was really, I was no. really impressed, although I wasn't as impressed as this time round, the last time round, I had a woman join the um, the read along who read each book for the first time along with me one a month for 26 months and really enjoyed it. And I could not believe she did that. Um, so massive kudos to her because that's that's massive. And we actually did. Uh, we went to one every two months for a bit with the larger books um, because it all was a bit much. Um, and then I'm not, I still can't remember why I did this, but I decided that I wanted to get some book groups. I was getting interested in book groups and reading a lot of books about book groups. And I was thinking that, um, it would be interesting to get a book group of ordinary ish readers or common readers to read an Iris Murdoch novel and see what they thought about it. Um, the main thing with well, part of the main thing with this was that I realised in my reading that a lot of book groups concentrate on either prize winners or kind of Rich and Judy, Oprah kind of recommended books. But there was a whole kind of wellspring of mid-century books, which were maybe going a little bit unnoticed. Um, so I somehow persuaded 25 book groups to read The Bell because I thought that was a, it's a really good in um, to her work, I think. And people still say that. Um, it was easy to get hold of. I knew libraries had it. Um, I got a load of copies and sent them to people as well. Um, and I think the stuff about what makes a book a good book group read was also what made it this particular book and her works a good book group read and therefore a good common reader read. Um, I need to make a slight caveat here, which is that I talked about the common reader in my introduction. I did all the proper. I didn't do my study academically I tried to write it up properly um, but I didn't kind of associate myself with any university or anything I just did it um, and I had my spiel at the beginning that I sent off to the book group leaders blah 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 common reader this common reader that and all of my book groups went a bit funny about being called common readers even though mm. I wasn't I had a quote from Wolf and da 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 and they insisted on being called ordinary readers not common readers however i ignored them in the title of my book because i wanted to call it iris murder and the common readers <laughs> but they made a fuss about being um common readers i don't know whether they just picked up the word common they did go I think it is, yeah. it's, that it's that kind of intimation that actually mm. you know, the common or garden reader is different from the yeah. ordinary reader it's just it's yeah and how language it's, is so different from you know 1915 to well you know 100 or so yeah. years later it's interesting mm. yeah yeah, I mean, this is kind of echoed by the fact that a lot of my book groups said something I didn't want them to say about the bell and got really, really worked up about it. Um, they got massively worked up about paedophilia and some of them went on and on about it and how horrific it was. And I mean, it's fair enough. Obviously, paedophilia is horrific. I'm not saying it isn't, but they went on about the, that theme as being the major theme of the book and how dreadful it was, which was really interesting because it's not something I'd really particularly thought about. Um, anyway, going back to whether... Murdoch's a good book group read. Um, obviously, I did my research and I found out that good book group reads do things like promoting discussions. So there's no point in having a book everyone loves or is too simple or everyone hates. Mm. Um, lots of themes and ideas, richness, depth of character, challenges people's attitudes and is controversial. Well, that certainly worked. Um, good writing, good story, different. And um, that was the kind of main things that book groups say um, are 
book, what my, my book group said were good book group reads. So they wanted something they could talk about, basically. Um, one of them said one that makes a good discussion, e.g. a book with a twist or a deep plot that we can talk about with each other. The book should inspire strong feelings. It isn't very useful if everyone liked it and if the book was too straightforward. Um, so that's what the literature says. And that's what my book group said. And basically, then when I asked them if um, I asked them what books they'd read, um, things like that, obviously, I did all the all the stuff you need to do. Um, I'd asked them if they had any expectations of the bell. And this was quite interesting because a lot of them mentioned it was going to be intellectual, high expectations, really well written, which were the good aspects of the same thing as too hard or too boring or worthy or pretentious. Mm. Um, so they were worried it was going to be too hard. Basically, that's what it came down to. They're worried it was going to be too hard. Um, and um, I've got a very funny quote from one of my groups, which I need to share, which is with no prior knowledge of Iris Murdoch's work. A couple of the group had thought it might be more of a period piece, more along the lines of a room with a view. And a couple admitting st admitted stereotyping the time period and expected more pip pip what ho, as one of them put it. <laughs> <laughs> it's just very, very, I don't think there is any. Is there any pip pip what ho in Iris Murdoch? Maybe that's uh, a discussion. Um, not one. Right. at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> it's hilarious. It was hilarious. But they, a lot of them said, I think most of us expected the book to be rather heavy going, more worthy than enjoyable. And we were surprised at how much we all did enjoy it. Um, we were all expecting this to be a difficult, hard read, to be erudite with obscure references. And we were surprised at how good it was to read, entertaining, challenging. On reflection, it was a brilliant story. I enjoyed it more than I thought I would. Um, so basically, they thought it was going to be hard and they really didn't basically find it that hard. Um, I think a few people... Skip. I mean, people skip. People skip over the hard bits when there's, they, you know, that we've got the um, in the bell, especially there's some um, kind of lecture stroke sermons, aren't they, which get a bit confusing at times. But I think it's OK to skip bits like that in other books. I do try to read them in Iris Murdoch, but, you know, they did that. Um, so when I asked them if the bell made a good book group read, 16 of my 25 groups said yes. And seven had a mixed response and only one group actually said on balance no. So I think that's pretty, I mean, you know, that's pretty conclusive. Um, that's not a bad hit rate. It's not a bad hit rate. And the reasons no. why um, it was a good book group read were that they could have a discussion. There was a range of issues and there were characters, even though didn't like it, three of them said. So <clears throat> it can be a good book group read. It might not be a good read as such, but a good book group read if you didn't like it. Um, the people that said it wasn't, four groups said it was a bit difficult or people out of four groups said it was difficult um, or not their usual kind of book. But there was a lot, there were a lot fewer why not reasons than there were why reasons. Um, and someone said, for example, the bell allows one to look at a different world that one doesn't often encounter and to think and talk about issues, sometimes difficult ones that one doesn't often have the chance to address. And this was a really good one as well. Most members like to be challenged by the book choice and appreciated that the bell challenged their preconceptions of what an Iris Murdoch novel would be like. So brilliant. That's exactly exactly yeah, right. And I, I think that's a lot to do with I, I, I imagine not to be too kind of uh, stereotypical, but book groups are people who are maybe a little bit older, um, may yeah. have known Iris Murdoch as a kind of cultural figure, as yes. an intellectual figure and had that kind of image of what her novels may have been like. Mm. And that's I think perhaps yeah, what they into, the, into this programme. I mean, definitely, when I did ask them a question, what did you know about Iris Murdoch before this project? Um, and 
oh, I put it quite pretentiously. I put it, we can split the responses into legacy engendered by the film and output about Murdoch and those regarding her literary out output. Um, <laughs> I went a bit over the top there. Um, so basically I had one category which was Alzheimer's slash dementia slash dead, which was the thing most people mentioned, to be fair. Husband, carer, the film, Judy Dench, Kate Winslet, but then literary and most included well-respected in that intellectual Irish sex, um, Oxford drinking, <laughs> controversial. Um, somebody had done a PhD on her, but most of my people didn't. Well, they were kind of just classic book groups of people. Um, very homogenous, which is what book groups are in the research. I had one group, uh, everyone was pretty well over 85 with wow. a degree or a master's, a woman, um, who'd had a career as a professional. So, I mean, that was my, that was a pretty good one. Some of them did have men in, um, but I mean, they, they kind of, they did match the, the book group research, which shows that they're kind of, they are groups of people that are similar. Um, but yeah, I mean, basically what I found was, I mean, I did, when I was looking into this in the first place, I found a load of quotes from Murdoch herself. I don't know if you want me to share those um, about. Uh, yeah. I'd, I'd like you to. I, I think what, what, what would be interesting, actually, is to, to bring Kent in at this point and to ask him a little bit about um, his experience of reading Murdoch in Sweden. Um, mm. I, I'm presuming, Kent, that you read Murdoch's work not in Swedish, but in, in the original in English. I tried to read uh, The Black Prince in Swedish, but uh, it didn't work at all. Uh, most of the Swedish translations are quite old. So, yeah. So it's and also the Swedish language. I don't know. A lot of the dry British uh, humor that that I find in Irish Murdoch's books uh, are are being lost in the in the translations completely. Sure. Yeah. And, and, I, and that, that's a shame, of course. I I read I read them all in in English many times over. Yeah, and um, um, I presume also that most of them are not translated, or, are, or is, would I be uh, surprised that quite a lot of them are? I think all of them are actually. Really, that yeah. does surprise me. Actually, I knew yeah. that some. I know that some were, but uh, but not all. I'm and not sure, but I think all of them are. So that that would mean then that she probably either had or has quite a, a large readership in Sweden. Probably, <laughs> I I during the years I've read her, I've, I've felt quite alone, especially until I came to the Irish Murder Conference the first time. Mm. I, I felt very alone. Uh, every time I mentioned her name, nobody knew about her. They hadn't read any, anything about her. Uh, and uh, it, 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 was a, it was a kind of a, a loneliness, a two-way loneliness. I'm an ordinary reader. I come from a non-academic uh, world. Yeah. And with, with a lot of, I would say, negative respect for the academic world because I was scared. <laughs> You know, I was uh, scared of them because what I wouldn't I felt that I wouldn't fit in there. And I was trying to find a, a, a setting, a, a community with the ordinary readers, but they had never heard of Irish Murdoch. So I was feeling really, really lonely. And, and it wasn't until I came to, to the Irish Murdoch conference the first time that I actually found out a lot of things that the academic world was not that scary after all. And, and on the conf conference, there was also a lot of people like me yeah. who, who did not come from the academic world and, and the, the, the conversations were really fruitful. And I think, I think this combination is actually one of the secrets to, to fruitful conversations. I think the academic world can add a lot to my reading, but I also think that the ordinary readers can add a lot to your reading. Yes, absolutely. I think it's a two way street, isn't it? Very much. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, I think quite often um, ordinary or common readers um, who don't have that kind of, you know, precision of looking at just just a particular element of the of the text or the philosophy can come, sometimes be brought, brought up quite in an interesting way about what um, other other um, non specialized readers are actually uh, actually looking at. So Kent, thinking about what Liz was saying about um, her reading groups, were some of the ideas that um, they were coming up with that she's just told us about kind of chiming with your own experience of reading Murdoch? Um, well, I was quite open-minded when I when I uh, first was introduced to her because I was really into reading. I had a lot of catching up to do. <laughs> nineteen <laughs> years, nineteen years without reading. So I was reading a lot, and I was uh, I was also in uh, into Hermann Hesse a lot at that at that age. Yeah, uh, and um, so I was pretty open minded. So I, I I didn't have any ideas actually. So I, I I wouldn't be able to 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 relate to. I have never been a part of a reading group, and as I said before, I ha I had I never met any Swedish Irish Murdoch readers. So I didn't have any picture. I I, I was surprised though. When I came into her books, when I read them more, that 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 it actually affected me and that it spoke to me because it was such a different culture, mm. an academic world in 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 Oxford. I, it's it's just I I, co I come from a suburb, you know, and and uh, with a lot of social problems. And why why does this speak to me? And that this is a question I still have. Actually, I'm still thinking. Of, a lot about this. Why are these people? Why are all those characters in her book speaking to me? It shouldn't. <laughs> the odds are, are are low for that, actually. And I wonder if it's something to do with the kind of a, elements of a universal human experience about loss, grief, love, lust, remorse. That actually those kind of topics carry over across cultural, religious, national boundaries, whatever. Maybe. Yeah, probably all that. And also, I think uh, um, I think it is uh, also from a male perspective. I'm, I'm, I'm really on thin ice here because I haven't really thought this out. But I really enjoy the fact that she can see things from a male perspective. And many times I have blushed when I read her. She has such an insight in the, in the male psyche. Mm -hmm. Especially in the C to C and the Black Prince, which are which are my two favorite books, uh, and it's just amazing to see that she, as a woman, can know this <laughs> about us. <laughs> <laughs> those those first person male narrated novels, which we'll probably yeah. and, and talk about it, a little bit, isn't it? It's embarrassing <laughs> in, many <laughs> in many ways. <laughs> yeah, you should think she she she's just cut. She's just caught it right. She's just yeah. caught that kind of male psyche right. Yeah. I think that's um, you know much to her credit. Uh, Liz, do you, do you find that as well that she captures um, particular elements of the human psyche um, to a T? And also, and also, I'd like to come back to those uh, comments that you're going to um, you're going to discuss with us as well. Um, yeah, I mean, I think because I, I was I was on thin ice myself earlier on. Um, I was going to say that basically she was more of a genderless writer I'm going to say she wrote about men from through men in a way that I hadn't really encountered before I think because mm. I, I was kind of reading a lot of women's fiction and women -y fiction and um, although they've got a lot of things to say about life feminism society whatever you didn't see things through a male eye 
And as I said, I was at I was at like a single sex grammar school. I knew nothing of the world of men, um, and it was quite fascinating to me. Um, I hope I didn't get my view of men from her male narrators because it would be a bit concerning if I did. Um, <laughs> and of course, the severed head is seen through male eyes, isn't it? It's yes. completely through the male gaze. So um, that was that is something that is different in her, and I think in a way, actually, her male characters come alive a little bit more well I always thought this I always thought there wasn't any feminism and I always got a bit kind of hot under the collar when people said the feminism of Iris Murdoch or in Iris Murdoch and then last time round when I read them I do this all the time I've read um I reread quite a lot and I know that I've read Middlemarch four times and it changed in each time from being a romance when I was 17 to being about death duties when I was in my 30s um and I did spot a lot more kind of little sly bits of feminism. Not, I mean, there's all the the kind of the battling ex um, suffragettes in Flight from the Enchanter, but there's also lots of little bits of course, which yeah. picked up as I went along. Don't ask me to now enumerate them. Um, I noticed them as I went along. Little moments about unfulfilled lives, about um, lives that should be look fulfilled but probably aren't. Just little moments in there. So I think I've kind of done her a disservice in saying she hasn't got kind of feminist things and doesn't see into women's lives as well. Um, but her men, her male narrators, are exceptionally kind of um, awful, bright, bold, <laughs> um, terrible. Yeah. <laughs> you know, enticing. Even the dreadful ones, um, dreadful. Yeah. Um, so that is an interesting point. And um, obviously, I mean, my I'm thinking I should have asked my husband about this because I've obviously, as soon as I came across him, I started forcing him to read Iris Murdoch novels. Um, and he's read um, The Sea, The Sea, The Book of the Brotherhood. Um, what else is he part of? Um, Under the Net. Mm. So he's done a kind of, he's done quite a lot of them. He didn't really like The Book of the Brotherhood. Um, I kind of tempted him into it with the parrot. And I think maybe that's not enough. <laughs> <laughs> to, um, to sustain a massive book like that um but um I, i'll have to ask him about that it's really interesting i hadn't really heard that discussed before even though i've been to all those conferences um so that's that's really interesting mm. and i think that this perception of how she sees herself um in her private life as being fairly gender fluid um and she relates in letters as well to people um particularly in her relationship with bridget brophy I think that does come through on the page quite a lot. And now that we have her journals, her letters and so much more um, in the last five, ten years, just so many different readings of the novels do come through. And you can pick up elements you think, ah, oh, yes, here is um, Murdoch really speaking from experience in, in, in some places, um, especially how she might perceive um, the world of men having had, you know, difficult relationships with, with, with certain people earlier in her life. So... I think what we what would be nice is if um, we came on to thinking about some examples from the uh, from the novels. Um, Liz, would you like to talk us through what you've chosen and why? OK, well, I was thinking about my favourite bits in the novels, and that's horrendous. I mean, that's just impossible, isn't it? Because there's so many of them and there's so many good bits. and There's so many good characters, um, animals, whatever. But then what I thought was actually the thing I really like about her. And I like this about this is a thing I like about books in general is I like a lot of detail. I like to know how things work. I know I like to know what things look like. And of course, obviously, she she does talk about um, being part of the realist tradition, doesn't she? So the Russians and um Elliot and people like that. Um, and I think that one of the things that really keeps me 
with her and draws me in every time and I and in fact I actually I was talking about it with my husband and he said he suggested the first one because he said oh that's one of your favorite bits isn't it and I thought yes it is so the ones I've picked are and the description of the theater in Under the Net Mm -hmm. Um, do you want me to read that bit out first and then talk about the other ones yes that'd be lovely Okay, so um, he Jake has been into the theatre um, looking for Anna. He's described the theatre. They've basically then gone and hidden in the back room. And actually, I've got, I think, pretty well the only edition in my hand which doesn't have a kind of reference to this on the cover. Um, so this is on page 37. I looked around the room. An astonishing medley of objects lay about in piles, which in places reached up to the ceiling. The contents of the room had a sort of strange cohesion and homogeneity, and they seemed to adhere to the walls like the contents of a half-empty jam jar. Yet here was every kind of thing. It was like a vast toy shop that had been hit by a bomb. In my first glance, I noticed a French horn, a rocking horse, a set of red-striped tin trumpets, some Chinese silk robes, a couple of rifles, paisley shawls, teddy bears, glass balls, tangles of necklaces and other jewellery, a convex mirror, a stuffed snake, countless toy animals and a number of tin trunks out of which multicoloured costumes trailed. Exquisite and expensive playthings lay enlaced with the gym crack contents of Christmas crackers. I sat down on the nearest seat, which happened to be the back of the rocking horse, and surveyed the scene. So that's just such a it's such a stuffed full scene. It's just got all the things. Has she seen that scene? Has she just invented it? Is it in her house? It's probably in her house. Knowing what her houses were like, it's probably just a room in her house. <laughs> Although this was quite early on. I mean, I know they actually they let one house actually fall apart, didn't they? Um, and um, it's just you can immediately see that room. You can immediately imagine all the little things popping into view. Um, it's funny. It's slightly menacing all those things the stuffed snake all of that yes. so and it just basically in that paragraph you've just got that room yeah it's a, it's a great bit of descriptive writing isn't it mm. yeah what, what have you chosen next okay next I've got and um, what I wanted to do is because she's obviously she is fantastic at describing things I'm not looking at the sea here because everyone always goes on about her describing the sea and I thought let's be a bit different here but this is a bit sea like this is I've got the cave from the nice and the good um no. So the it's such I mean, every time I must have read this off at least four times, if not five. And every time I read the cave bit, I get panicky and think, oh, no, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? I won't say what happens, obviously, for anyone that might not have read it all. But um, this teenage boy, Pierce, he's basically gone off for a swim. He's gone in this cave that he's wanted to explore forever. And it's obviously it's not it's never going to end well when someone swims into a cave in a novel, is it? Because why? No. It's um it's the gun thing. Chekhov's gun. Is it Chekhov's Chekhov? gun? Yeah, just yeah, thinking Chekhov's about that. Yeah. If, you, if yeah. you've got a gun in yeah. the first chapter, you've got somebody's going to be shot yeah. later on. Exactly. Yeah. If you've got a cave in a book, someone's going to get into it and then have a bit of an issue, shall we yeah. say? Um, so um, I'm going to this is from chapter. Oh, it says chapter numbers, chapter thirty-four. Um. Okay, the distant light from the cave entrance was shut out and Pierce glided into a sphere of total blackness. He checked his stroke and looking over his shoulder could see a suggestion of light upon the water, but no light, low whitish arc of day. He must have turned a corner in the cave. He fumbled down for his electric torch and treading water turned it on. The beam was long and powerful, but the air seemed to have a powdery physical quality which narrowed and contained the light. Pierce made out the room, roof of the cavern fairly high above him and the sides running sheer into the water and festooned with brown seaweed like a display of glistening necklaces. 
cave seemed to be about 20 yards wide. Keeping his torch trained on the roof, Pierce swam a few strokes back and the distant line of the daylight suddenly materialised in the darkness on his left, like a long flake of some whitish substance laid out close to his head. It, is, it was as if he could have touched it. At the same time, the moving spot of the torch above him seemed to plunge and vanish. So that's much more of a, that's much less of, start there's less stuff in there there's some walls there's some necklaces funnily enough um there's walls there's the can you see the daylight where is it it's mysterious mm. you're already in there you're looking around you've you've have you turned a corner have you turned around have you not what's happening with the torch i think the torch is a special waterproof one um yes it's an electric torch guaranteed waterproof and that's always a worry isn't it you know yes. <laughs> it's always going to not be waterproof when that's mentioned um so there's, I mean, that comes in a, a quite a long discussion of the cave because he's swimming around in it and wondering where on earth he is and it's a cave underwater, never going to be a good thing. So it's a very different description to the first one. It's kind of a lot emptier, but you're in that place the yes. same, in the same way. And I, I, I love the, I, I love the, um, love the choices there. Two um, pieces of descriptive writing, which is perhaps what she's, best known for and I'm, I'm going to be really interested to see what Kent's chosen um for his choices and why and what he, and what he, um, Kent what do you think of Liz's choices I think they're brilliant and and both those passages uh, uh, impressed me also very much the first time I read those books and also like Liz I don't know how many times I read that book but maybe four or five times and and the panic <laughs> every time it, and that's one of the ma magic things with Irish Murdoch that that even though you know what's going to happen, there's always something new. There's always a new perspective. It always feels like you're, you're reading it for the first time. Sure, yeah. It's one of the, the greatest things. Um, I've chosen a part uh, from um, The Black Prince. The ah, Black Prince, the Black yeah. Prince is a book which I think I have read seven times. And every time I read it, it's like a new book. And I, I always have this feeling did I read this the last time? <laughs> Did I actually understand anything about this book? It, it's, it's, a, <laughs> it's working on so many levels. Yeah. And one of the levels that I kind of only found after reading it three or four times, it took a long time before I actually spotted this thing. And that's to her self-criticism as an author. Yes. Yeah. She, was, she was not happy about her books. She was, she was not... Uh, they were not perfect in in her own eyes, and uh, there's this uh, talk between uh, Arnold and Bradley about literature, and um, so I will I will read here. Uh, you speak as if the artist had never realized his faults at all. In fact, most artists understand their own weaknesses far better than the critics do. Only naturally, there is no place for the public parade of this knowledge. If one is prepared to publish a work, one must let it speak for itself. It would be unthinkable to run along beside it whimpering. I know it's no good. One keeps one's mouth shut. And a little bit further down, every book is the wreck of a perfect idea. The years pass and one has only one life. If one has a thing at all, one must do it and keep on and on and on trying to do it better. And an aspect of this is that any artist has to decide how fast to work. I do not believe that I would improve if I wrote less. The only result of that would be that there would be less of whatever there is and less of me. I could be wrong, but I judge this and I stand by the judgment. 
I think this is such a good description of the criticism towards her and that she was really aware of. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she says that a bad review is um, not as important as whether it's raining in Patagonia. But I think that kind of comment that we have in her fiction is, is certainly one that she does take this to heart. Yeah. And she is very much a human writer um, and places her fears and, and, and concerns within her fiction. Yeah, I just wanted to say also to this passage that, that this is probably also one of the reasons why I keep returning. Yeah. Because, because I also sense that she never makes it 100%. The, the, book, the books that I read, they are excellent in all sense, but there's always a sense of she doesn't fulfill her potential yeah. in, in the way that, I, that she probably expected of herself. I can't talk for her, but the, in the way I uh, expected. Uh, and this doesn't mean anything negative in my way because this makes me keep returning to the books. It's, it's really positive because other writers, other books, I read them once and that's it. Yeah. You don't feel any sort of desire or need to return to them, and yet with Iris, you do. No, I've chosen the other one. I, I'm I'm not sure where this is from. It might be from an interview. It might be from a book. Um, I, I was trying to Google it yesterday, but I couldn't really find where where it came from. Um, and I think this is a very good example why I very much like uh, uh, Irish Murdoch's books. It's the combination of profound truth and uh, humor. Yes, she makes you think, and in the next second, she makes you laugh. So I will read this now. Yes, of course, there's something fishy about describing people's feelings. You try hard to be accurate, but as soon as you start to define such and such feeling, language lets you down. It's really it it's re, it re, it's really a machine for making falsehoods. When we really speak the truth, words are insufficient. Almost everything except things like. Past the gravy is a lie, of, lie is a lie of a sort, and that being the case, I shall shut up. Oh, and past the gravy. I think that's a really, really good example of, of of saying something really, really profound, and at the same time, making a, a bit of a joke. Yes, I think so too, and I think that's from the film, isn't it, as well? It may be. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I think I think that's a line that. Um, I think maybe Kate. I think maybe Kate Winslet is the younger Iris speaks in speaks in the film. I think that's where that's from. Um, but yeah, I think that does encapsulate um, a lot of what she's uh, what she's trying to to get across. Yeah, especially this concern with language, which is is, is something that uh, haunts her all her life. This idea of um, the creation of language and how language is connected to thought and meaning and action. Yeah. I think we all can uh, recognize the profound truth of of, uh, of, of uh, the futility of, of words and language here. Uh, I even sense it now while I'm sitting here <laughs> do, do, doing this podcast and, 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 and looking for words and, and looking for something important to say. And it's just so difficult. Yes, it's, in some regards, there's so much to say. Yeah, there's, there's too much. There is too much to say. Liz, do you want to um, reflect on those two um, Quotations that Kent's use, and also I think you might you might have um, one from the philosophers people to share. Yeah, I mean I think the Black Prince is is an amazing book, and you're right, it does change every time you read it. Um, especially oh you just oh it's all the the nesting, isn't it? You think well who's right, who's wrong, who's telling the truth, who isn't telling the truth, 
is he a romantic, amazing character like I thought at the beginning? Is he a kind of slightly predatory, dodgy old man, as I thought maybe last time? Um, you know, it does, um, which is, I think, you know, it's the mark of a, a great novel that you can re reread it and reread it and find something different each time. Um, I, think she, I think she's playing tri tricks with a reader all the time in that book. Yeah. Oh, yes. Um, one of the one of the things actually one of the quotes I did want to share as well was from her um her Paris Review interview um, where she talks about um what um what she would like people to get out of her novels. I don't know if that's a pertinent one actually more than the thing about the pipes and the philosopher's pupil um, uh, because it's yes why not yeah a quote from her Paris Review interview which is reprinted in um, from a tiny corner in the House of Fiction um, which is the collection of her um, interviews which is marvelous. Um, she was asked what effect she would like her books to have, and she replied, I'd like people to enjoy reading them. A readable novel is a gift to humanity. It provides an innocent occupation. Any novel takes people away from their troubles and the television set. It may even stir them to reflect about human life, characters, morals. So I would like people to be able to read the stuff. I'd like it to be understood, too, though some of the novels are not all that easy. I'd like them to be understood and not grossly misunderstood, but literature is to be enjoyed, to be grasped by enjoyment. And she also described her ideal reader as those who like a jolly good yarn are welcome and worthy readers. I suppose the ideal reader is someone who likes a jolly good yarn and enjoys thinking about the book as well, thinking about the moral issues. And I think that just encapsulates it. They're very um, kind of reassuring quotations um, because that encapsulates the idea it isn't really for, she isn't for academia. She wasn't writing for academia. She obviously knew a lot about academia. She probably suspected her books would all be kind of, pulled over and mulled over and bits and bobs brought out and articles written and whatever. When it comes down to it, she wanted them to be read and enjoyed on whatever level you enjoy them. Yes. And I think that's what we do when we're, uh, uh, I mean, okay, I've got an English degree and I've written a book about her, but I still wouldn't say I was any kind of Iris Murdoch expert. I'm an Iris Murdoch fan and I think that's a different thing. Um, but I feel I can sit at a conference and present a session, which Kent always came to my sessions, which I always massively appreciated. Um, you know, I could present on my research when it wasn't academic because, hey, Murdoch liked people liking a jolly yarn and that's fine. <laughs> it's it's uh, that I, when I read that uh, interview the first time, I, I was so comforted. Uh, it, it, I felt warm in my whole body because I just felt that the Irish Murdoch, she, she was kind of, taking care of me <laughs> she was writing for me and 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 it was it was such a great feeling to to hear her or to read her own words the passage definitely. that read. yes yeah, i definitely agree with that yeah yeah i think we we all approach her in a particular way don't we um and yet we can just read her for the, the sheer joy of doing so and in fact we probably should just do that to uh to begin with um as we, we're coming towards the end of our our time together today um i wonder if you could um reflect a little on what murdoch means to you now and also for those maybe who haven't read much or maybe haven't read anything by iris murdoch who are listening to the podcast maybe you could uh, recommend somewhere to start uh kent shall we start with you well i'm, I'm currently on a on an irish murdoch break for, for the first time in seven years <laughs> Yes, I, for seven years I read only Irish Murdochs. So wow! It's, uh, so it, it's uh, I, I I have been kind of obsessed, uh, and um, just a few months ago I decided to open a few other books: Barbara Pym, uh, um, Side of Rosie, and other great books. And and 
right now at the moment i have a i think it's it's um it's good for me to not read irish murdoch <laughs> <laughs> i i really need to 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 widen my perspective uh and i i really enjoy reading other books at the moment but last night i was going through some of her books to find some passage that i wanted to read as you requested and uh, i went through some of her books and i kind of Right away, I started longing. I just wanted to get back there. It was, it was, it was like a drug, you know. I had to, I had to force myself. You know, no, 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 not now. Let let's let's stay away for another few months at least. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. Uh, if I would, if I would recommend a book, it's 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 very very hard because I find her books uh, different. Actually, I know I know about all those themes. That are are returning in her books. That are there are with, with all these characters and the the enchanter and all that. But I think they're all also pretty different. And I think like the, the Black Prince is is like a criminal story in in many ways. Mm-hmm. Who is the murderer? Yeah, that that it's kind of absolutely yeah, that kind that kind of story. Uh, uh, and the sea, the sea. I say I I put those two books together in, in a way because that's also kind of a a mystery. When you close the book, you're not really, really sure, <laughs> and you, you want to return. Uh, if if you're into that kind of mysticism and and, and excitement, which which comes from reading a, a criminal novel, I, I would start with the Black Prince. Mm. It's it's just so fulfilling in that enjoyable, a, a little bit superficial way. And if you keep when if you read it the second time, you will you will. Um, realize that the book is working on so many many more levels than a criminal novel of course but i think that's a, that's an it's a easy book to start with in that sense because there is a mystery and it's a, it's a page turner and uh, i also would recommend the sandcastle it's a, it's i know it's not considered one of her, her best books but it's a very beautiful love story with a lot of romanticism and also a lot of insight into the human psyche and into love also. It's it's. Uh, I think it's an excellent book in describing the futility of of romantic uh, love. Yeah, and uh, I agree uh, so, with that one. Yeah. yeah. So I, those ones I would uh, recommend as starters. Yeah, three quite three quite different novels as well. Um, yeah, I, I I enjoy them all. Uh, thank you, Ken. And um, Liz, how about you? What does Murdoch mean to you today? And um, and do you have a recommendation? Well, as I was reading her this last time around, last couple of years, um, I kind of realised that she basically formed a lot of me, which was a bit frightening. Um, I read, I, I was reading um, The Nice and the Good, and there's the passage about Mary. Mary depended more than she might have been willing to admit on a conception of her existence as justified by her talent for serving people. And I thought, oh, that sounds like someone who volunteers loads and gets a lot out of it and is missing it at the moment. Um, and definitely her kind of mullings on how it is to be good what it is to be good to be kind of good quietly in the background to not be a kind of I don't know to not you know the whole um ask again um what it is to be good to be good in the background to be quiet the unselfing idea that's something I really absorbed early on because as I said I read a lot of her novels um when I was in my kind of teens in those formative times when you're and really, when I went away to university, I kept reading her as well. So it's those times when you're forming your own self. So she's kind of almost 
created a lot of me, which is, you know, an alarming thing because you like to think you're your own person. But then actually I seem to have been created by Iris Murdoch. Um, not in the weirdy ways, just the um, just the trying to be good. The, the reflective um, good ways. Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> moving swiftly on to my recommendations. Um, I've done a kind of um, algorithmic thing here. So if you like modern novels um, with a touch of the surreal and the kind of caper stuff, and also obviously very appositely being some of it being set in a, um, a system for um, studying the common cold, I'd read Under the Net. Mm. I think People think, oh, it's a philosophy one. Oh, no, but actually it's really readable and it's got a lot of, I mean, all the stuff around the film set is absolutely marvellous. Um, and, yeah, I just think that's it's it's fun. It, you, yes. you can read it on lots of levels, but effectively it's a fun novel, isn't it? Yeah. It's, um, really, it's really funny. It's it's very funny. I laugh a lot when I re read that book. And it's got a good dog. It's always, it's always nice. <laughs> There's a lot of good dogs, aren't there? Um, if you like George Eliot... I would say go for the philosopher's pupil because you've got a world. It's the only one really where she creates an actual town. You've got a whole town. You've got the world. You've got the people. You've got the web of um, society that is in Middlemarch. Um, I immediately connected to when I read philosopher's pupil um, and it's so absorbing and also has a good dog. Um, and if you like myth, and the way different worlds collide and maybe there are thin places in the world and a bit of mystery, um, then I go for The Green Knight, which also has a good dog, um, but is, I mean, it's a very late one, but it's always been one of my favourites since I read it. Um, and it's, I don't think it's talked about that much. I know when we had a Baggy Monsters conference theme, it was talked about, but it's just marvellous. It's just such a good story. Again, it's a good story when it comes down to it. And that's what you really want from a novel when it it's, comes it's a great one i read it in the last month or um mm. another um, another podcast and it was um, a pleasure to talk about that one for an hour um yeah it's, that's a great novel uh, yeah there's some really wonderful recommendations on there as well i mean for I, I always recommend the bell or under the net um but i certainly think that um you know i know a lot of people that go straight in on the sea the sea and you know love it um so why not just pick up one that's closest maybe and, uh, and just see how you get on yeah also, the sea, the sea is the one you can always get in a bookshop. This is true. Yeah, mm, that's true. Probably the, the easiest one to get hold of. OK, well, um, it's been an absolute pleasure um, talking to you um, today, um, Liz and Ken. So my, my, my thanks to you both um, for um, being guests today. Um, my thanks to Liz Dexter and to Ken Brown. And my thanks to you all for listening. Thank you. Thank you.